John chapter 7. If you have your Bible, find John chapter 7. This morning we're going to think through the second half of this great chapter, which we started last week. If you recall from what we said last week, the setting of the events here in chapter 2, I mean, it's chapter 7, we're told in verse 2 of chapter 7 that the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And I said last week that the significance, we would say the significance of that little tidbit until this week when we uh, think when it, it's, it's going to most closely pertain to that, the climactic statement in our passage for today, which we'll find in verses 37 and 38. I think what Jesus says there in those verses and its connection to the Feast of Booths is the most significant thing going on in our passage today. And so we'll certainly give close attention to it for sure. But I do think that if we step back for just a minute, if we step back from the narrower confines of our passage alone, this, this, this we're looking today, and we zoom back and, and see something about the broader context of this chapter, um, something else also comes to the fore. Last week, in the first half of chapter 7, you may remember this, uh, in the first half, we saw Jesus making mention of something that happened way back in chapter 5. Do you remember that? He said, I did one work, and it was referring to back in chapter 5 when, when he healed the, the invalid man on the Sabbath day. And so just picking up on that, for the reader of John's gospel, if you're just reading and trying to understand John's gospel and you're here in chapter 7, you probably did, you're probably reading chapter 7 all at once. You're not reading half of it, then waiting a week and reading the second half of it. If you're here, your mind has already been drawn to something that was earlier in chapter 5, and specifically the healing of that invalid man on the, on the Sabbath day. And so for the readers of John's gospel, even here in chapter 7, things in chapter 5 are still in mind. Things in chapter 5 are still um, having a bearing on your understanding of what's going on in chapter 7. And so before we look in earnest at our present text at cha in chapter 7, I want us to say, see something else that happened in chapter 5 that I think influences what we're going to see here. Among other things that he said in chapter 5, if you're looking in chapter 5, in verse 39, in chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus told the Pharisees and the other Jewish religious rulers, he said this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. That statement did two things. And it set the reader of John's gospel up for what to give their focus and attention to. First, that statement, it, it draws our attention to the very idea of searching the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures. That's, it draws our attention to, to, to that idea of searching the Scriptures and all the things that we find here. But second, that statement also impresses on us the urgency of seeing and finding the right things when we search the Scriptures. Um, Jesus, in, that, in, in John 5, 39, Jesus did not fault them for searching the Scriptures. No, he, he faulted them for failing to understand the most important reason we should search the Scriptures, which is to see Christ in them. And so he's telling them basically eternal life is not found in 
knowing a lot about the Bible, but in seeing Christ there, to know him and to come to him in repentance and faith through that. That's, that's been the aim of John, yes, before Jesus said that, but certainly since he said that in chapter 5, verse 39. Um, to draw our attention back to the Scriptures, to see Christ here. Again, as his stated aim at the end of the book is that we might believe in him and that by believing we might have life in his name. Take that idea from chapter 5, verse 39, bring it into uh, chapter 7, and we come to the latter half of this chapter. I want us to take our cue from that and think for a few minutes about seeing Christ with the Scriptures. Seeing Christ with the Scriptures. That's what I want us to, that's big picture what I want us to think about this morning. I, I believe that idea, seeing Christ with the Scriptures, I think that idea, it, that is a steady emphasis throughout the entirety of our passage today. And especially in that climactic statement right in the middle of the passage in verses 37 and 38. That being said, if you're in um, chapter 7, we'll read our passage together beginning in verse 25. Read through verse 52 and we'll think about seeing Christ with the Scripture. So follow along with me as I read aloud beginning in verse 25. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not come yet. Yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of the people wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But 
this crowd that does not know, yeah, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And so I pray that as we come to this word, uh, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the truth that's here. Give us eyes to see Jesus in the scriptures. Would you give us minds to understand what Jesus says here and what, what the word teaches us here? Would you give us hearts to embrace and love the truth and wills to obey what it leads us to do? Would you give us all ears to hear and give me the help that I need to teach? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, our, our, our focus, again, on, on this, uh, throughout this whole passage is seeing Christ with the Scriptures. And I do think that's an emphasis that arises very naturally out of this, this text. So I, I, I think on the whole it's not difficult to see. But I don't want to move as we're going to, how do we, how do we tackle it? How do we think through it? I don't want to just move from beginning to end of our passage just straight through. But I want us to uh, save the middle part of it, that climactic statement where Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. That climactic part, I want to save to the end. And so here's how I want us to structure our, our look at the text together. First, we're going to look at verses 25 to 36 and think about this the impossibility, the impossibility of seeing Christ without the Scriptures. The impossibility of seeing Christ without the Scriptures. That's verses 25 to 36. Jesus is there in, the, in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booze, and people are debating over who he is. But their debate highlights for us the impossibility of seeing Christ without the Scriptures. Second, from verses 40 to 52, 40 to 52 at the end of the passage, uh, I want us to see the insight of seeing Christ with the Scriptures. This is kind of the opposite emphasis of the first point, the insight of seeing Christ with the Scriptures. In these verses, 40 to 52, there's also a debate still going on over who Jesus is, but there's a different tone to this debate than the first one earlier in the chapter or earlier in the passage, and there's a reason for it, and I want us to see that. It's more hopeful, the insight of seeing Christ with the Scriptures. And then finally, I want us to turn our attention to that climactic portion of the passage uh, from Jesus himself, the invitation to see Christ in the Scriptures. Jesus stands on the last day of the feast, the great day, and he himself, out of his own mouth, invites people not just to come to him, but to, but to see his, what he is saying in light of what the Scriptures has said. Uh, yeah, to know what, when he says, come to me and drink, he specific, specifically invites them to understand it in, in light of, as he puts it, what the Scripture has said. So I hope as we make our way through this great passage for the next few minutes, you, you come away from it treasuring the gift that we have in the Scriptures, but not so as to make the same mistake the Pharisees made, but seeing and treasuring the Scriptures so that you see and treasure more the Savior, and the salvation they present to us so richly. So we've got a, we've got a bit to think through. 
with this passage. Let's get into it and think first at the beginning about the impossibility of seeing Christ without the Scriptures. So this is the emphasis we see in verses 25 to 36. But just to set the scene, we're picking up in the middle of a chapter. Uh, In the first half of the chapter, if you recall, early on in the chapter, they were about to go down from Galilee, Jesus and his brothers and others from the town where they live were about to make their way southward into Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. Remember, uh, Jesus' brothers were inviting Jesus to go along with them and make a dramatic entrance, let them know who you are, Jesus. You know, and he didn't, want to make, he didn't want to go down with them, so he sent them. He, he later went down privately to the feast, uh, didn't go with his unbelieving brothers in the caravan that they were uh, going in. And we saw in the first half of this chapter, we saw a series of people rejecting Jesus for different reasons. Jesus' brothers rejected him because of familiarity with Jesus. Others in the crowd that day rejected Jesus because of fear of man. They specifically feared the religious rulers and the consequences they would incur if they were to be seen following Jesus. And then others, the Jewish rulers specifically, because of fixed opinions or fixed prejudices against Jesus. When we come to verse 25, people in the crowd are still debating on who he is. And this debate will comprise, as we just saw when we read it, this debate comprises the majority of what we read in the passage. Debating who the Messiah would be, where he was supposed to come from, whoever he was, what what he was supposed to do. And again, it it covers practically the, the whole of the passage with the exception of what Jesus stands to say right in the middle of the chapter. But, but, um... I said earlier, this first debate in 25 to 36 has a different feel for the one that we're going to see later in the passage. How so? Well, the first thing, if we're looking at beginning in verse 25, the first thing that got them to thinking here uh, was the well-known fact that had been a a well-known reality for over a year at this point that the Jewish leaders didn't like Jesus and they were looking for a reason and a way to put him to death. Not just to arrest him, but to put him to death. They had been actively trying to arrest Jesus and put him to death for at least a year. And that would have been a well-known rumor going around in Jerusalem. And we were first told this, again, back in chapter 5, verse 18, says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That was way back in chapter 5. So it was, it was well known for a year that, that the Jewish leaders didn't just not like Jesus, but were, were looking for an opportunity to arrest him and put him to death. But in our present chapter, it, it, was, catch, it was finally catching the people's attention over a year later that, that here Jesus is in the middle of this feast in the middle of the temple, teaching in front of everybody. And it's a well-known fact that they were trying to find him, to to arrest him and to kill him. Here he is in the middle of everybody, and the rulers aren't doing anything about it. So they reason, they say in verses 25 and 26, some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they're seeking to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Here's their conclusion at this point. Can it be that, this, that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So at first glance, the crowd, because of that, are, are inclined maybe to believe that Jesus is the Christ, but based on what? Circumstantial evidence, right? They aren't arresting him. 
They're, I mean, they, I know, I've heard that they want to kill him. I've heard it's a well-known fact that they want to arrest him. Here he is in the middle of everyone, wide open, teaching, why aren't they arresting him? What could that mean? Maybe he is the Christ. Well, they think about it a little more, and here's how they further reason in verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. What? I mean, uh, where in the world would they get that idea that when the Messiah comes, nobody would know where he comes from? Because the Bible, pretty, as we'll see later, the Bible pretty specifically says where the Messiah would come from. Right? So how in the world do they say no one will know where he comes from? The, the, the best guess, if you want to give the most charitable reading on their, what they're, on their comment as you could possibly give, the, the, the best guess of most commentators is, uh, is that this idea could have come from a passage like Malachi 3.1, where it's talking about the coming Messiah, and Malachi 3.1 says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Will suddenly come into his temple. And so they might reason that if he came suddenly like this, we wouldn't know where he was coming from. But that is... That is only a, a possibly reasonable interpretation of that passage if you are completely ignorant of the rest of the Scriptures, right? I mean, I, I highly doubt that they had given serious thought to Malachi because that would lead you to the conclusion because, that they were intimately familiar with Malachi but utterly ignorant of Micah, right? Instead, I, I think what we have here is just unreflective hearsay flying around Jerusalem and people were all over the place in one verse maybe he is the Messiah they're not trying to put him to death on the other hand there's no way he's the Messiah because I don't know why I believe this but nobody's going to know where he comes from but just opinions are just flying around about as flimsy and unreliable as, as possible Jesus in verses 28 and 29, knowing the flippancy of the crowds to understand seriously who the Messiah is and whether or not Jesus is the Messiah people were looking for, he reminds them in verses 28 and 29 of the seriousness of the issue when in those verses he reminds them of who they're actually debating about when they're debating about him. He reminds them that he is eternal and that he is coming to them from the right hand of the Father. And he'll tell them later in verses 33 and 34, that when his work is done, he will go back to the Father, and it is a place that he looks at them and says, you cannot come. Why? Because he says in verse 28 that they don't believe. He says at the end of verse 28, him you do not know. They don't believe. Why? Because it is impossible to see Christ apart from the Scriptures. They were looking right at him and couldn't understand who they were looking at because they were ignorant of the scriptural witness about him. Verse 31 tells us that, yes, yeah, some, some did believe, but the vast majority of the people were still left with questions. Verse 31, at the end, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 35, where is he intending to go? Verse 36, what does he mean when he says, apart from the scriptures, all you're left with are questions. We pray at the outset of every lesson, every time we open up the Bible and read it. We pray, and we, in that prayer, we confess our faith that the Scriptures are not only His inspired, inerrant, 
sufficient, clear, authoritative, but also what? His necessary word. His necessary word. And that's what we mean. Without the Scriptures, we can't understand who Jesus is when He's standing right in front of us. When Jesus came, He didn't just come. When Jesus came, He came preaching. He came preaching. Or He would come and He would stand and He would read from the prophet Isaiah and He would roll up the scroll and sit down and say, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he told Nicodemus back in John 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Talking about his coming crucifixion. And and the way he told it to Nicodemus, it's not just that he would be lifted up and crucified, but he would be lifted up and crucified as Moses lifted up the serpent. In other words, the full meaning, the full understanding of what's going on when Jesus is crucified is filled out by understanding what happened in Numbers 21 when Moses lifted up the serpent. Apart from the Scriptures and the careful reading and studying of of them and specifically looking to see Christ and His work in them and foreshadowed in them, we will be left with questions and no way to find answers to them just as we see here in John 7. But that's not all we see. We've already mentioned that debate over who Christ is. It kind of bookends this whole passage. And when we go to the end of the passage, beginning in verse 40, verses 52, we see a starkly different debate, still over the identity of Christ, but from a far more hopeful and certain position because of the insight of seeing Christ with the Scriptures. The insight of seeing Christ with the Scriptures. And there, when we're looking at 40 to 52, there are, there are two things at, the end, at this end portion of our passage that I want us to see in particular. The, the final part of this passage presents us with, with two separate scenes, each with something noteworthy that we need to notice. The first part is verses 40 to 44, and the second scene is verses 45 to 52. And so let's think about that first section. You can see... When we, when we come to verse 40, that they had heard what Jesus just said that we're about to think about when he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. They had just heard that. And, 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 and in the chapter, it issues into another debate about who Jesus is. Is he the Messiah? I want you to notice something different about this debate, though, over against the one we just saw early in the chapter. Notice the kinds of things that they are saying. All you had in the last debate was questions. What does he mean when he says? Where is he intending to go? It's just questions. You come to this debate and notice the things that they said. Verse 40, this really is the prophet. It's not a question. This really is the prophet. That's talking about the passage from Deuteronomy 18. When Moses said the Lord would raise up another prophet like him, a greater prophet than him to whom they should listen. Their familiarity with Deuteronomy 18 and the promise of a greater prophet coming helped them to understand exactly who Jesus is when he opened his mouth. Verse 41, this is the Christ. Again, some were convinced from the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The ones I think that Jesus would draw their attention to in the verses right before this, which we'll see in just a second. But notice particularly those who still weren't sure. 
Notice how the ones who weren't sure are thinking in, at the end of verse 41 through verse 43. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Oh, my goodness. Contrast that with the last group who said, We wouldn't even know where he was coming from. Well, they didn't tell these guys because they're expecting him to come from the offspring of David, from Bethlehem, from the village where David was. How would they know that? Micah 5, 2. Right? They, they, because of the Scriptures, knew exactly where. They knew exactly what to expect when the Messiah came. So why are they still not sure? They weren't sure, not because they, they weren't certain about the Scriptures. Where were they stumbling? They were wrong about where they thought Jesus was, in fact, born. They said, uh, they said, would the Christ come from Galilee? They had heard that Jesus grew up in Nazareth in Galilee, so they assumed he was born there, right? And they knew that the Scripture said he would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, and, and so I, it leaves me to the conclusion that this is a debate. They're still not sure who Jesus is, but this is a more hopeful debate because somebody could have come to them and said, oh, you're mistaken. He was not born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, and at that moment, because of the context the Scriptures gave them, they would have said, of course he was. This is the Christ. The Scriptures gave them the insight that they needed for their debate to be so much more hopeful and confident than the aimless debate we saw earlier. Almost no hope of finding the answers and truth about Christ apart from the Scriptures. But with the Scriptures... These others in the crowd already had a context in their minds to measure Jesus against and come to saving faith in him when he came. That's in the first scene, verses 40 to 44. Verses 45 to 52, though, there's, there's another scene and, and something else I want us to see. The focus in those verses shifts from the crowds to the rulers again, the Pharisees and the the chief priest. By the way, verse 45 says, the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Um, the, 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 chief, the chief priests were primarily Sadducees. And, and, and so you had the Sadducees and the Pharisees both teaming up. Common enemies make strange bedfellows because they really didn't like each other, but they really both hated Jesus. Anyway, um, it, draw, it draws back to them, and they were all pretty upset with the officers that they had sent to arrest Jesus, that they came back having not arrested Jesus. And the guy said, well, nobody ever spoke like this guy. They were, they were pretty scared to arrest him. In the midst of their berating these officers, the Pharisees asked this question in verse 48. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Well, what do you think? I can think of one, and he was sitting right there. In verses 50 and 51, Nicodemus, the Pharisee from John 3, was sitting there, and he boldly speaks up in favor of Jesus, saying they shouldn't condemn Jesus without a hearing and without learning more about him. I personally think Nicodemus was a believer at this point. I think he, he believed in, in chapter 3. He's here. The next time we see him in John, he's here speaking up in favor of John. And we'll see him a third time in John 19 after Jesus is crucified. Nicodemus is one who helps to take care of the body of Jesus who had just died. I think Nicodemus was a believer here 
And when he says, shouldn't we give him a hearing? That's him secretly saying, I want you guys to hear what I heard back in John 3. Right? What had Jesus told him back in John 3? That apart from the Holy Spirit, no one will repent and believe. Right? So which is necessary? Are the scriptures necessary to repent and believe? Or is the Holy Spirit necessary to repent and believe? The answer is yes. Right? The Holy Spirit speaks to us in the scriptures. And that's the other advantage of seeing Christ with the scriptures. Not only that we see Christ with the scriptures, we see Christ more fully, more clearly, with more context through the message of the Scriptures, but that the Holy Spirit of God speaks to our heart as well, not simply to cause us to understand, but mercifully moving us to believe. The insight of seeing Christ with the Scriptures is not just the clarity of the Scriptures themselves, but that through them the Holy Spirit of God illumines our hearts and minds, not just to understand, but to see Christ through them and believe. It's not surprising when you look at these two emphases in the chapter, the impossibility of seeing Christ without the Scriptures and the inside of seeing Christ with the Scriptures, that right in the middle of the passage, you find Jesus himself issuing the invitation to see him in the Scriptures, the invitation to see Christ in the Scriptures. The high point of this passage is verses 37 to 39 where John tells us it was on the last day of the feast, the, which he calls the great day. The Feast of Booze, by the way, was a, a week long. Um, and what did it do? Why is it called the Feast of Booze? Well, it remembered, um, it remembered and celebrated God's provision for the people in the wilderness after he had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, because of their disobedience and their grumbling. It remembers during those 40 years, God provided for them there. He, he gave them, um, uh, and it's called Feast of Booths because during those wilderness wanderings, they would have lived in small booths and God would have provided for them there. Um, and they built themselves booths to remember how God had done that. God had provided manna for them to eat when they were hungry in the wilderness and twice on two different occasions, God provided water from a rock when they were thirsty. And like I said, the Feast of Booze for a whole week, six months after the Passover, remembered and celebrated that provision of God in the wilderness. They remembered God's provision of food in the offering of sacrifices every day of that feast. And here's the more pertinent point. They remembered God's provision of water when water gushed from the rock during their thirst. On, on the, on the, it could have been every day, but scholars are divided. This, did this happen every day or did it happen on the last day, the eighth day, the great day of the feast? We know it happened on the great day. On the, on the, on, at least on that last day, on that great day, there would have been not just sacrifices offered, but a water pouring ceremony. They would have poured out water around the altar, and as they were pouring the water, the people were saying, reciting Isaiah 12, 3, which says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Looking for that great day when a greater salvation would come. And it was on that great day 
in the midst of that whole scene of water being poured around the altar and the people saying, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, that Jesus stands in the middle of that scene and cries out. doesn't just say, but it says in verse 37, he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus stood up in that biblically rich moment and presented himself as the fulfillment of that promise and hope. And notice where he invites the people to think in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this is a notoriously difficult verse to understand grammatically. The way it looks in our Bibles is that Jesus is quoting a specific verse that says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, but there is not one verse that says just that. When Jesus says, as the Scripture has said, he's talking about a whole matrix of things the Scripture has said. And, and, and if, there's, if there's one place that, that he's referring to, I think if you had to just pick one place, I think there's more than one place, but, but a, a, a place to start uh, is, is, uh, is in Nehemiah. Let me try to explain what I mean. He's standing up. I think he's, when he says, as the Scripture has said, he's talking about all that, you've, all that you've already just seen, right? He stands up in the middle of this biblically rich Jewish feast where the biblical background of that feast is already on everyone's minds. Jesus had, had, had just stood and he said all, all that that was pointing forward to is fulfilled in him. And now he says, it is as the Scripture has said and invites us to think even further about what the Scripture has said about this day. I know this isn't easy, but stick with me. Again, the background of the feast is God's provision in the wilderness, and especially his provision of manna and water from the rock. And if there's one passage, like I just mentioned, that, there, that, that Jesus is drawing people's minds to when he says, as the Scripture has said, I believe it is Nehemiah 8 and 9. Go ahead and find that place in your Bible. Hold your place here and find Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9 in, in the Old Testament. Again, the background uh, here in Nehemiah 8 and 9 is that the people had returned uh, from Babylonian exile to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. And during that rebuilding, Nehemiah chapter 8, during that rebuilding, they found the book of the law of Moses. It had been missing. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? And they began reading the law. And you can, if you read chapter 8 of Nehemiah, it tells us that they read for hours upon hours and days upon days. The people stood for hours from dawn till dark. They stood for hours as Ezra the priest read the law to them. And as they heard the word of God, they wept because they realized how disobedient they had been. But among that, when they were listening to the law, they heard about the Feast of Booths in Deuteronomy 31. And they said, oh my goodness, we haven't been doing that. So they said, let's celebrate the Feast of Booths. So they built booths and everything, and they celebrated the Feast of Booths. They didn't just do it for seven days. They did it for a whole month. And they come together, that's all Nehemiah chapter 8. But then at the end of the feast in Nehemiah chapter 9, it issues into this 
long, amazing prayer. And they prayed a long prayer in which, in verse 15, they prayed, remembering God's provision in the wilderness. In verse 15, they prayed, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. And now down in verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna for their, from their mouth and gave them water for their, for their thirst. Now, what I want you to notice before we go back to John 7 is just one thing. Notice how the focus in verses 15 and 20 of that prayer, the focus are on the provision of manna and water from the rock in those two verses. But in verse 20 of those two verses, that is summarized as God giving the Spirit to them. You gave your good Spirit to them. God gave His Spirit to them to provide for them in the wilderness, not only in the law to instruct them and in the pillar of cloud and fire to lead them, but in the manna and the water from the rock to satisfy them. Now turn back to John 7. And Jesus says in John 7 verse 37 that if anyone thirsts, come to him and drink. And he is saying that rock that satisfied their thirst in the wilderness was just foreshadowing him who can satisfy them with something better than literal water. Just like he said in the last chapter, he could satisfy them with something better than literal manna. How? He says in verse 39 of John 7, now this he said about the Spirit. Those whose literal hunger and thirst is satisfied by bread and water, they will get hungry and thirsty again, but Jesus gives something better in the Holy Spirit. When he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, um, those who believe in him. And when he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, I think he's, he's alluding to Ezekiel 40 to 47, specifically chapter 47, when Ezekiel prophesies about a future temple, um, which I believe is first and foremost fulfilled in Christ. He is the temple, but then those who believe in him are connected to him by faith, and they are, we are the temple. And in Ezekiel 47, there's a, there's a picture of ever-increasing, an ever-increasing river of water flowing out of that temple, symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. This too, I think Jesus is alluding to in John 7 when he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not just that he gives the Spirit to all who believe in him and who come to him in faith, uh, but that the Holy Spirit would be with them forevermore, drawing them to faith in Christ and sustaining their faith in Christ. Now, I'll admit, this is not the easiest passage to wade through, Right? But the point I want to end with is this. What was it that Jesus invited us to wade through? Right? The Scriptures. The Scriptures that so richly point to Him and the salvation that we find in Him. If all we had was Jesus standing on some random day saying, come to me, that would be one thing. But it's quite another to have him stand and say to the multitudes, not just anywhere, but in Jerusalem, and not just any day, on this day, the great day of this great feast, with all of its background, remembering this past salvation uh, in, 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 after the Exodus, looking forward to another day of salvation coming, to stand on that day and say, come to me. 
and I'll give you water for your thirst. The scripture fills out the picture. It is impossible to see Christ without the scriptures. Romans 1 says, God has made himself known in creation, in the sun, moon, and the stars, in our conscience. We know right from wrong. We know his moral law in our hearts. But you will never see the gospel of Jesus Christ written in a cloud formation. You cannot know the gospel message apart from the scriptures, which is why we do missions to take the scriptures to those who've never heard. It is impossible to see Christ without the scriptures. The insight to see Christ is found in the scriptures, and Jesus himself invites us to see him there, but not just to see him, but to believe in him and to keep seeing him so that our faith continues strong to the end. What a precious gift is his word to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. I pray that uh, if it wasn't altogether clear, my explanation of it was not altogether clear to anyone here, I pray that, that, um, that they took notes, jotted down references, and would go back and read those again for themselves because if anything is clear, your word is clear. Thank you for this word. Thank you for, uh, for Jesus Christ, and thank you for the fullness of, of, the, of the truth we find about him in, in your word. I pray that we would never grow weary of reading it, studying it with an eye toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.